Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's episode, the water access crisis in U.S. cities, I talk with Melody Wright, owner and principal of Sadu Strategies and a former Philadelphia city official, about what lack of affordable access looks like in cities, the lack of data we have on the extent of the access problem, and how Philadelphia's tiered assistance program helps assist city residents in paying their water bills. All right, Melody, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Great. Well, so let's dive right in. You know, dig deep, and the U.S. Water Alliance published a report a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic started, outlying the U.S. water access gap. And the number was something like 2 million. And I remember before that was published, I used to say 3 million, something like that. Something like a city the size of Phoenix worth of people is lacking access to, to drinking water and sanitation in the U.S. In this session, I want to focus on two different aspects of that that big challenge. One is the urban side of things and the other is the affordability side of things. So tell me what lack of affordable access looks like to a typical municipal utility customer. Sure. I think it really looks like many times what has happened in the past. Arrearages that can't be easily overcome. Inherited properties that also bring old water that's with them that are difficult to overcome more than the lack of direct affordability here in the present per se, particularly now in the time of the pandemic when access to water has been open more widely with the long-term extension of moratoriums on shutoffs for the sake of public health and safety. Okay, that's great. So you, you pointed out two, I think, really important distinctions. One is that affordability has two axes. One is rates and the other is infrastructure. So why don't we start there? Tell me about affordability from those two standpoints. And then I think the second angle I'm just remembering is pre versus post pandemic. But let's let's start with the infrastructure versus rate angle. Sure. Infrastructure is definitely imperative to the reliability and access to the system. And so it's in turn imperative to maintain and also over time upgrade the infrastructure. There are costs associated with that, which are, you know, tend to be costs for, you know, the cost for providing the service. And so as those costs change, you'll see rates change, but it always is presented in a way that tries to be the least disruptive in a given period of time. When you talk about the pandemic, it just was undebatable that being able to ensure that households had access to water, regardless of the ability to pay at a given moment, is what had to take place in the midst of this public health crisis. Those are interesting, I think, observations to stress. And, and I want to go back to the infrastructure piece one more time. It seems to me like you're talking about the public good side of infrastructure and how price and rate structures get passed on because of improvements there. What about the stuff inside the household? When it comes to inside the household, those components are the responsibility of the homeowner. There are definitely programs offered by water utilities or partner organizations to water utilities that can help people pay for repairs, replacements, and upgrades of some of those components. And, you know, in some cases, depending on the location. 
And then on the COVID side of things, the pandemic side of things, what was it like before the pandemic? What's it like now? What do you think it'll be like as we hopefully normalize with an endemic uh, virus? Before the pandemic, there definitely was already increasing conversation about helping to ensure that customers can afford the essential that is water in their homes by making sure customers have awareness and access to programs that, you know, the the interesting change about the Philly program that was launched in 2017 for water affordability was really about helping to ensure customers could get help with paying those bills before they find themselves in arrears, which is a really big change and a really important approach. Okay, we're going to come back to that in, in a little bit. I want to dig into that a little bit more. Let's just think about what I like to do is, is give the listeners an idea of this, the scope, the scale of, of the challenge. You work in Philadelphia. Is this a Philly thing? Is this a East Coast thing? Is this a U.S.-wide phenomenon? I think being able to afford the costs and essentials of daily living is a challenge for people all over the country. And tell me about the the equity side of that. Is this something that happens? Um, obviously, it's it's something that happens to poor people rather than than folks who aren't poor. But is there also a difference with respect to race and affordability and in access? I think that that's a challenging question in the sense that um, I think we do, you know, particularly I think in pretty much any large city in the country, you'll look at poverty based on zip code. And there definitely can tend to be a concentration of a particular race or ethnicity in a particular zip code. But there are challenges for people of all walks of life across the country in terms of being able to make sure that their utilities are consistently accessible. Now, one of the angles that I discussed with Catherine Coleman Flowers on a previous episode was what she calls America's Dirty Secret which is that nobody knows about these issues. Why, why is this issue so unpublicized and why do so few people, few people know about it? I think at least some part of it is there really isn't necessarily a publicly accessible database that gives information or tells a story about water rates and ratepayer activity because, you know, rate payments and water billing accounts really are, they're private personal information. I think the other thing is that there is some conversation in the industry about this topic in terms of, you know, you see, I had the chance a couple of years ago to be able to present at the AWWA conference and share the experience that we had in Philly in terms of standing up the water billing assistance program there. So people from utilities around the country and even in some cases in different cities, different international cities, were definitely interested to learn more because they knew that this is something that they're going to have to do in their own cities and their own water utilities. So that's a good prompt for you to describe the, the assistance program the Water Utility Assistance Program. Why don't you tell us again in a little bit more detail what, how that works and, and why it's successful? Sure. The biggest thing, like I mentioned, is that the program focuses on ensuring that customers can seek assistance prior to falling behind on their bills so that there isn't that hole that they dig themselves in that can be so hard to escape. The program was really focused on 
building protection and convenience for customers on a number of levels. So whether you think you may be eligible for a senior discount or other programs that the utility may offer, you can apply for all of them with a single application and you will be considered for all of them. And then the utility has the ability to pick the one that will benefit you most and enroll you in that one as long as you remain eligible. Tell me a little bit about the long-term benefits of the program. It seems like, and we've talked about this before, it's it's not just like, hey, here here's your debt, it's forgiven, start paying. There's baby steps and capacity building along the way, right? Sure. So, you know, customers who have older rearages can begin to chip away at those at the same time that they are current in the program for the current bill. And it also kind of gets customers in the habit of paying these sorts of bills on a regular basis, which when you translate that activity to other bills that a person may have coming into their homes, getting into that practice really can save you money on late fees and that sort of thing when it comes to some other sorts of bills that you may incur. What are some other strategies that folks use around the country in in assistance? You've given us one example. Are there other tools that can be deployed? When it comes to other sorts of utilities, for instance, a number of them, in addition to billing assistance, can also offer assistance with repair or replacement of associated appliances. So like, you know, um, gas companies can help you with parts or repair related to the heating system and that sort of thing. But in the water space, there is also programming for loans to support um, repair or replacement in some cases of that infrastructure, the components of the infrastructure that are the responsibility of the homeowner. Give me an example of an expensive one or a couple of expensive ones that would require loans. Sure. So, you know, a broken water lateral, the pipe that extends from your home and connects to the water main in the street, you know, that could be a cost of $3,000 or more to repair. Well, that's substantial. And I think probably most listeners don't know that they're responsible for it, right? I think that can be the case, you know, just depending on how widely shared or publicized that is in a given, you know, in a given water uh, utilities purview. All right, let's, let's pivot to other utilities. And maybe some of the answers are the same, but maybe there are some differences. Customers that have water have energy and internet services and bills for those that they might be behind on. Are some of the same programs that, that you're using in the water space common and popular and for other utilities? Yeah, there are definitely programs for families that may have challenges with household income to ensure that, you know, because many of those other sorts of utilities, including in the age that we live in, especially now we saw it in the pandemic, telecom really is an essential utility as well. Right. I'm glad you said that. I feel like that's definitely become the case for me in my own job, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure it is for you. Coming up, I talk with Melody about how much and how little, we understand about water shutoffs for U.S. urban households, how much of the urban access problem is about aging infrastructure, and whether a new generation of water utility managers is ready to tackle these problems. I'm going to go back to the scale of the challenge. The Dig Deep report and U.S. Water Alliance report says 2 million people lack access to clean water. I would bet that that's mostly rural. Give me a 
ballpark figure, not number, but it, is the challenge the same magnitude in, in urban areas with affordability or is it bigger or is it smaller? I would say it's a it's an interesting time to explore that question because of, you know, there's been this now, you know, nearly two year period where shutoffs have not existed in the same way that they have in the past. And that's kind of what what we one of the main, you know, indicators that you may look at is their percentage of shutoffs in a given utility. But prior to the pandemic, there were definitely, you know, in larger utilities, you know, there are definitely some entities that will report five percent or that sort of range at a given time. So, you know, if that if that could be considered as a potential average across the country, then it would definitely be that would be a number in the millions of customers. Right. Yeah, that would be a daunting, daunting number for sure. You just mentioned data again, and so I want to tie together two different points that you've made on data. On the one hand, customer data are protected by data privacy laws. On the other hand, shutoffs are something that you can know outside of the utility because they're an aggregate number, I think, right? They're not customer specific. Are the data we have good enough to know what the number is and to to solve the problem? Or do we need to get to that level of household in order to really know the number and also know the challenges in front of us. Yeah, it can be hard to know because of nuances like multifamily units and that sort of thing. It really does have to, I think it would need to drill down to the individual household or unit level to really know in in detail. That's an interesting answer. I mean, I think, you know, I've myself have, have worked on sustainability related questions that required household level data. And they're very hard to come by for, for good reason. Now we just kind of got it. We got the 5% number, which is huge. What are some of the tools that you or others or policymakers can use to scale these programs to, to chip into that 5%? I think that um, it really is important to continue to learn ways that we can maintain and upgrade infrastructure, but be as least disruptive as possible in terms of, um, you know, in passing the cost on. And so I think that comes in the form of things like, you know, additional conversation around that infrastructure bill that was, that was introduced. I think it comes in continued customer education about doing things like ensuring that there aren't leaks in the water system on your property, which can offer you significant savings. How common do you think the program that you created and curated in in Philly is across other big cities in the United States in Um, terms of financial assistance? There are definitely um, sort of older versions of the program in place, but across the country, I'm definitely also seeing that many cities, particularly larger, you know, medium to large cities are definitely getting on board with updating their water billing assistance programs. So that's a good cue for me too, to kind of ask you a little bit about SEDU strategies and how SEDU comes in to help here. What what kinds of services do you provide if a, if a municipality or a, a utility really wants to engage in in this kind of assistance, what do you do? We can help with things like providing advisory on customer information or education materials. 
advisory on government relations, especially in terms of being able to secure approval from your local or municipal regulators when you are making changes to those water billing assistance programs. We can also provide advisory on program content, you know, the water billing assistance program content or structure, particularly as it relates to customer outreach communications. Okay, tell me about program content. What does that mean for a non-utility person? Sure. So that means things like what will be the criteria for eligibility in your program or how will you get the word out about your new program? I understand. Okay, that's a great set of services. And so let's turn to kind of the big picture. Cities are growing all over the world in the U.S. as well. So the urban population's getting bigger, but the water systems are here to stay. They've been here for a long time and they stay the same. What kinds of challenges does that present for the the problems that you tackle? I think the biggest challenge, and we see it every winter, particularly on the East Coast, is keeping up with aging infrastructure. You know, when it gets cold and you see communities have to endure low water pressure or the loss of water during water main break episodes, I think it can, you know, sometimes create some perception challenges around where people may place priority on paying their water bills. And so the investment really does end up benefiting water customers because as more customers pay, reliability and access are increased. As more customers pay, it makes it easier to more quickly, you know, to quickly get out in front of the issues that may pose inconveniences or create frustration for customers. Tell me what diversity looks like in the workforce and water utilities, how that has changed since you entered your profession and how you see it changing in the future. I think there's definitely um, movement in a good direction on that in terms of seeing You know, you always saw a good level of diversity out at the field, you know, the field level. But in the highest levels of leadership, you're starting to see a change as well in terms of seeing more minorities and more women. Then people who have been around for a long time, but they definitely were in very, very small numbers. I think the number is slowly starting to increase. Let's talk about youth. We talked about this before in a, in a national water meeting not too long ago. There was a at least one whole session focused on, on retirement and water utilities and in Utah, utilities in general and how that was a challenge because of the potential lack of continuity in, in knowledge, but also an opportunity because it opens up the door for digitally capable young people to enter the workforce in those positions. So How do you see that changing? And do you think that could be another tool to solve some of these problems we talked about with data privacy, for example? Mm. I think, yeah, I think it's inevitable that we'll see, you know, the increase of technology around a number of functional areas in water utilities and an increase of, you know, the instance of people of perhaps a younger average age, as you see so many of the long-tenured water employees begin to retire in large numbers year over year. What do you think some of the 
opportunities are there? I think there will be opportunities for continued innovation in the water space. And you see it in things like even changes in, you know, many utilities have made recent upgrades to their metering infrastructure, which employs technology that gives customers a lot more information about their water usage and water bills than they have ever had. Going back to the privacy issue, how does that change access to data, access to knowing the scale of the problem and designing solutions for it? I think it creates the potential for leveraging real-time data in ways that will continue to add to impact and innovation in the coming decade. So those data, those technologies will enable employees in the, in the utility to view those data in innovative ways and create new programs for the customers they serve rather than folks outside of the utility per se. Well, yeah, and I think, but I think in terms of outside of the utility, it will also be an increasingly powerful tool for helping customers to maintain some degree of control over their consumption and expenditures. The last question that I uh, that I wanted to ask you is, is where you see yourself in five years, either with Seydu or back in a utility, leading a utility somewhere in a municipality? I do think it would be fun to come back to a utility in a municipality, um, bringing this experience from the outside back into an organization in a medium to large size city. I think to be able to have experience with other sorts of industries, peer utilities in a different way, and even technologies and strategies that may not have felt like they fit in the utility or may not have had the chance yet to be explored in the utility are perspectives that could be valuable to bring back into that space. That's great. So perspective matters and and crossing that boundary between public and private probably matters as well, right? Yes. And that's definitely a boundary that's increasingly crossed in a utility space as well. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time, Melody. It's it's been fantastic talking to you on uh, about a, a topic that I think is really important and is only going to get more important as we move forward. So, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sable.